The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is an old friend, uh, Robin Bourne. Robin is a subject matter expert on federal acquisition at the Gormley Group and a former longtime GSA acquisition professional. Uh, Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. It's nice to be here. Well, you know, I'm looking forward to the conversation. And, you know, you, you focused a lot of your career on the GSA schedules program, um, in particular, and in particular, the IT schedules. And we might talk about the, the IT portion of the current schedule, since it's one schedule now, but uh, today I thought we could just, you know, get your take and what you're seeing in current trends and insights with regard to the GSA schedules program. And, you know, with that, let's just kick it off, you know, running hard. And that's what the <laughs> inflation has been doing over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, I know GSA has responded um, with um, some policy changes from the senior procurement executive and the policy office in FAS. And they've been implemented, I guess, or that's maybe the question, um, whether they have been actually adopted and implemented at FAS or not. But for let's just start at the higher level and just your take on the, the policy um, streamlining changes that were made with regard to EPAs in response to inflation. Well, I, I think you know, Jeff Kosas, who's the senior procurement executive at GSA, issued the uh, he issued the the guidance I think a year and a half or more ago, and then he sort of extended it recently. And uh, he did all the right things, said all the right things. He removed the the cap. He removed the requirement to go one level above. He basically to, gave the CEO yeah, to approve the. I'm sorry to interrupt. I should. Just one level above the CO, you removed that, that that was required if you're going to exceed the cap, or how does that work? Yeah, yeah, and so uh, you can do it more than once. You know, more than the, the it was limited to three times a year previously. Remove that. So he basically said the circumstances are so fluid and the and they're critical for contractors. They they you know they they can't be handicapped by being caught in a uh, in a loss situation. So let's make it easier. Uh, for the contractors to come in and request and for the contracting personnel to approve requests for economic price adjustments. And the concern has been that at the ground level, that has not seemed to happen. Uh, And I think it's sort of a combination of a number of factors that uh, are playing out really across the program in general, not just with the economic price adjustment. So I, I think you have one, and, and I think there's a number of things going on at sort of the same time. You've got continuing pressure, I think, from the IG. Their focus is on low price. It always has been. Uh, you have automated tools which uh, are pulling data that the CEOs are utilizing in price analysis, and that those tools are sometimes pulling either outdated information 
or data on prices that are not comparable. So, you know, there may be prices of products that are made in China as opposed to trade agreement compliant countries, where there may be old prices from the same contractor in some cases. And, you know, how can you get get an, an up, uplift in your price if your if your new price request is being compared to your existing price? I mean, and, and which doesn't make any sense. And I think sometimes the CEOs lack understanding or some CEOs lack the understanding of the commercial market. And, and I think that causes them in some cases to misread or not properly interpret the policy and guidance that's there. And then I think the training is not effective. At least it's not reaching the people that it really needs to. And I, th I think part of the reason is that it's remote. It's, it's, it's a Zoom training. It uh, needs to be in person. There need to be an opportunity for the questions to be asked in person and answered and you know, be in sort of a face-to-face -face, uh, realization that the person understands the answer and that uh, there's a common understanding across the group that's being trained as opposed to a bunch of individuals on a Zoom call that may have one ear on the call and the other doing their work or something. But anyway, that's sort of a, I know it's a broad answer to a more specific question, but I think it's, yeah, I don't think you call it the perfect storm, but it's just, it's a number of factors that have come together over time to you know, create an atmosphere that's uh, not conducive to GSA being at its best. Wow, that's a lot there, Robin, but let's just unpack some of it. Let's, you know, you mentioned training off the top, and it seems to me a couple things. I think the point about having in-person training, I think mean, that's the ability to sit in a classroom and, you know, and debate folks and have discussions during breaks and going up and talking to your, just your instructor and having more in-depth conversations. All that stuff, I think, is conducive to you know, your professional development and developing that balanced sort of thoughtful approach. Um, you know, so I think, I think you make a good point on that regard. And is there any kind of move towards more in, in-person training um, as opposed to virtual? Not that I'm aware of. I think, uh, you know, my old office is now 100% remote. And I hear that they, and that's the office of policy and compliance. And, and they have people who work uh, from other around the country. They have uh, people probably from most of the regions that GSA is present in. Uh, and, and that's a good thing because you get input from uh, each of the regional activities at different centers. So that's, that's a good thing. But the unfortunate thing is that my understanding is that they only get together occasionally uh, for sort of an all hands meeting, but the, the training is still all virtual and uh, uh, that, as as we discussed, you don't get the benefit of all the things you just enumerated um, a moment ago. And and uh, and my other question on along the along with regard to the training is, um, how much of the training that GSA or even the federal government does really focuses on the commercial market, how commercial markets operate, or even how businesses operate and manage, and you know and and organize themselves to make a profit, which is not a, you know, a dirty word. Does, is there enough, you think there's enough training and insight with regard to actually how folks go about, you know, 
managing a business in a competitive market? No, no. And, you know, it's, in fact, there is very little training that's focused on the schedules program. Uh, so the, you know, the CEO and, and as they rise through the ranks and get their warrant and, and they have to take uh, specified training courses, most of that training is geared towards the cradle to grave contracting, uh, not the schedules. And so you don't even get much uh, training on the the schedules process of, the, of determining a fair and reasonable price and looking at commercial practices looking at pricing and how to do how to find it how to look at it how to make sure that you're looking at comparable pricing comparable products all of that stuff it, it's very little of that is is done there have been a few schedule specific courses developed in the in the past five or six years but uh, they really don't get into the negotiation and pricing aspect of it very very deeply so is it more just about the general FAR-based acquisition process? A lot yes. Of this training, yeah. Yeah. And, it, yeah, the schedules is, is shifting. So you had the, the traditional way over, you know, previous 45, 30 years where you looked at commercial sales practices, and that was information provided by the contractor, which – shared with GSA how they sold, how they went to market essentially. Hold it okay. right there. Cause, and we can pick that back up when we come back from the break and just talk about the changing focus of pricing and also a little bit about you make, you raise a, the question of focusing on low price. We can talk about that as well in that context. Uh, my guest today is Robin Bourne. He is a subject matter and expert in federal acquisition at the Gormley group. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Robin Bourne. Robin is a subject matter expert in federal acquisition at the Gormley Group. Um, And we're talking about, you know, just an update on the GSA schedules program generally. And when we took the break, Robin, you were about to get into really kind of the boiler room, I guess, a little bit, right? But you're going to talk about, uh, you start talking about the commercial sales practices format and the, you know, sort of legacy pricing model. And um, I think you were going to go from what you were saying towards where the evolution, the next logical step in, you know, pricing on the schedules program with transactional data reporting. I think, I think that's where you're yeah. going. Am I, yeah. am I right? You're, right? You're correct, Roger. You're correct. Okay, well, go, go ahead. Yeah. So, so you had the commercial sales practices. It was uh, information provided by, provided by the contractors on how they go to market, identifying their their biggest and best customers and the pricing they received, uh, and also terms and conditions are an important part of that uh, sharing. And then the GSA job is to uh, identify a proper target for their price negotiation using that information. And typically they would target large customers who were getting a big discount, uh, buying in quantities or in a manner similar to uh, the commercial customer. So if you had a big national account, it was buying, uh, uh, you know, from all over the, you know, like a Ford motor buying all their distributors buying, that might be a reasonable target. Uh, But, on the other hand, the government is a onesie twosie buyer in many respects. So you may have a huge volume 
uh, over the course of a year from the government customers, but they come in from you know, literally thousands of agencies. So uh, they're onesie twosie buyers. So in some cases, uh, the big the big national account price might not be a fair target, but it, it, that's where you have to look at not only the price they get, but the terms and conditions uh, under which they're buying and the circumstances. So recently, uh, as of, I guess, 2016, when the transactional data reporting rule was uh, finalized, GSA has, trans has been transitioning to what we call TDR. And that is a total change. So under TDR, the contractor only submits in their offer a price for the, for the line items they're offering. No information supporting that price. And this is where things are starting to maybe not unravel, but get a little bit uh, away from policy. Because the policy for TDR states that the CO is to look first in their price analysis at readily available information. And that has become the automated tool. So it's a 4P for products and the CALC tool for services. Well, as I mentioned before, in some cases, those tools are pulling outdated information and maybe it's hard for services on a CALC tool to compare, you're comparing people and, and, and labor categories that are not standardized. Uh, and, and then you have the next step is for the CO to do their own uh, similar item comparison, do their own research, try to find some comparables that, on their own. Well, that is largely not being done. They pretty much default to asking the contractor to provide that information. So that's a step away from the policy as it's written, which is, says the CO needs to do that. And then the final step, if they can't get there, you know, remember the goal is for the CEO to have sufficient information to make a fair and reasonable price determination. And if they still can't get there after doing all their own research, then they're supposed to go to the contractor and request other than certified cost and pricing data. Well, that to me should entail a phone call, a conversation, and an agreement based on the sharing of information on what the contractor might be able to provide that could help them. But what we're hearing is, you know, someone the other day mentioned that they'd gotten a request for, other than certified cost and pricing data, just a flat out request for that. And it was a, a reseller. Well, resellers, their only cost is what they pay the distributor or the manufacturer. So it was obviously a situation where the CEO did not understand what they were asking for. And, and that's that's where the training need comes in. There, there, you know, as I mentioned early on, there needs to be the opportunity for these CEOs as they're growing in the program to understand the history of it, the, how this transition uh, is supposed to take place, what their job is, and understand the marketplace and how things work. It's, there's so much that's, that's, you know, it's there. People have the information and could share it, but it's not happening. You know, either casual sharing of information, uh, formal training that should be in person, uh, or management coming in and saying, 
let's talk about this circumstance. Let me share with you some of the things I've seen over the years and and sort of help the CEOs get the proper perspective and understand how best to to look at the information that's there. Uh, that's right. that's what I think is missing in too many instances. Again, this is not across the board, but it's it's in too many instances to be uh, comfortable these days. It seems to me listening to you too, Robin, one of the things I wanted to ask about is, you know, the applicable terms and conditions, both under the old regime, CSP, and under transactional data, those things are kind of fundamentally have to be part of the equation for any kind of price analysis. Absolutely. Yes. And as I said, you know, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just saying the automated tools are not excellent at doing that. I mean, they, they provide some information for the CEOs to, you know, they maybe put in certain criteria for labor categories to try to get uh, more comparable information. Uh, but different companies call different people, different titles. So it's, again, the GSA does not utilize standardized labor categories in the schedules program. It goes with the, the commercial uh, definition of the labor category that the contractor uses. And then with the products, they're using primarily the 4P tool, which is pulling based on product descriptions and is really utilized primarily for identical matches. And there are a lot of cases where there is not an identical match, so they're not getting anything. And then when they do, sometimes the identical match may be based on a product description, but it doesn't look at the country of origin, for instance, which you know, something made in China is going to be significantly less expensive than one made in a trade agreement compliant. And a lot of companies have multiple manufacturing points so that they can comply with a TAA, but it's, it's more expensive. Yeah. Um, and I know GSA is trying to figure out how to move forward and expand TDR across the entire schedules program and maybe when we come back we can talk about that a little bit and also what the benefits are of tdr for the program for the customer agencies and 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 i think also for industry as well uh and then we can you know maybe segue a little bit to kind of talking about some of the overarching guidance that that uh, gsa uses and you know what it means or doesn't mean for contractors these things are all interrelated uh, my guest today is Robin Bourne. Robin is a subject matter expert in federal acquisition at the Gormley Group. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Robin Bourne. Robin is a subject matter expert in federal acquisition at the Gormley Group, and we're talking about you know current trends, updates on the GSA schedules program, um, and when we took the break, Robin, uh, you know, I wanted to get your take on, you know, the, uh, again, the kind of timeline, um, or not for expansion of TDR and also, you know, w- what you see as the benefits for the government and for industry in moving to TDR. Well, I think, I think GSA has expressed a desire, uh, over the, the last year, little over a year, I think to expand TDR to the entire schedules program, uh, which will enable them to have a common practice, you know, in pricing uh, across the program, which certainly makes sense. Uh, 
they're getting some pushback uh, and I think they're trying to push forward. Hopefully it will be, you know, uh, not too long before they're able to move forward. And I think, you know, there are lots of benefits associated with this for, I think, both industry and, and the government. So for, for industry, certainly a big benefit is the elimination of the price reduction clause uh, and the CSP and having to track all the inf information and, and report it and uh, the price reduction clause was always, uh, you know, a, a threat, especially for uh, as, as we get more global economy and you have sales forces that are uh, more independent and they're spread out across the country. Sometimes a contractor doesn't find out about the a rogue salesperson's deal until it's already triggered a price reduction. And uh, I'm not making excuses for the contractor, but it's, you know, that would, it's sort of an innocent uh, occurrence and yet it has uh, serious consequences in some cases. Well, so, well, Robin, in that regard, Robin, just also, it's not really necessary, right? I mean, I mean, the price reduction clause dates to a time when, you know, competition wasn't required at the order level, like back in the 80s and early 90s. Right? Yeah, no absolutely. Required. And it, right. And it's, it's really, in the scheme of things, it's not been triggered very often. You know, there you see an occasional report, but uh, it's it's not really had the, it, it, you know, the disastrous effect that it, it, it could have. And it's really very ineffective for services. I mean, the, it's, it's you rarely see an instance of a violation in the services side, and that's where the bulk of the federal dollars are spent in the schedules program is, is in the services area. So, uh, whereas with transactional data, you're getting current pricing to government customers on products that are on the schedule, and you know the the GSA negotiators need to be mindful that. What they're looking at with TDR is a order level price as opposed to a contract level price. And you know, back back in the mid '90s, there was a huge change in the schedules program uh, to prevent the price reduction clause from uh, being impacted by federal sales. Uh, it used to be if you lowered your schedule price, that was the new schedule price. But there was an acknowledgement at that time that hey, these these deals are competitive and depending on the circumstances of the order, there's going to be the need to discount. And if you punish a contractor by saying, well, that's your new schedule price and you'll drive all the business to the open market, which is more timely, time consuming and costly for the government and the taxpayer. It was a huge benefit when the price reduction clause acknowledged that and said, look, federal deals don't trigger the price reduction clause. So TDR needs to, you know, while it needs to acknowledge the difference between contract and, and order level, the order level pricing will be the uh, same products. It'll be, it won't be the country of origin issues. Or there are also all sorts of benefits. And it also provides GSA the ability to share with customer agencies their buying trends. And uh, that's another use of transactional data is to share with the customer agencies, how they're buying and how they can use that information to buy more efficiently and effectively. Right. And, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, you make a great point about in the nineties, you know, that change to the price reduction clause so that when you offered a customer agency, a lower price that didn't 
become the price on your contract for the rest of time. And, and all I would say is that even since the nineties, the competitive ordering requirements have, have gotten even greater for, for agencies using the schedules than they were in the mid nineties. So that's even competition is, you know, is, uh, you could argue has been enhanced by further, you know, guidance and the regulations to support that as well. Um, you know, and one thing I, I did want to ask you too, and you may, um, with regard to that data and better buying practices, you know, I think one of the things we have seen, right, is the is the use of BPAs really exploded. I think it's close to half the dollar value of orders are now under BPAs under the schedules program. Can you talk a little bit about BPAs and how agencies use them? Well, I think to me, a BPA is uh, and, and sort of an agency's own little IDIQ. So, uh, and, and yet it has more flexibility. So, an agency has a long term requirement for either products or services or a combination and they they put in place the the RFQ and they say we're going to have this requirement over the next several years and it enables them to narrow down to a field and and, and, and multiple award BPAs are recommended and easier to do single awards are uh, harder to put in place by regulation uh, especially if they're over a certain dollar value but so you have a smaller community of vendors than the the big huge schedule and let's say you have a multiple award of five or six contractors they understand your requirement they understand the specific terms you may have put in there in terms of you no know, delivery or you know what what what's needed and and then you have the opportunity to compete at the order level amongst those five or six uh, vendors. You also have the opportunity, you put in language, we used to recommend that they put in language allowing them to update the vendor pool as the, as needed. So if participants were not competing, not playing, not participating, you could off, off-ramp them. And if, if you needed to supplement the vendor pool, if a new player came into the marketplace that was, uh, you know, a top player, you had the ability to add that player. So you're your solution, your your BPA pool stayed, you know, valid and vital and uh, compromise, you know, com- com- comprised of the best players in the market. And uh, that flexibility doesn't exist in a traditional IDIQ. I mean, they they've tried off ramps and on ramps, but it, it's it has to go out to everybody. With the BPA, you can go out. Per the ordering procedures, you can go out to three or more, uh, you know, to supplement the pools. You can do it in a more expedited and efficient manner. But the the BPAs are a great tool. Right. And um, one of the things um, with regard to those BPAs as well is uh, that I wanted to ask you about is the difference between an agency-specific BPA and a sort of generic government-wide BPA because I know one of the things I hear is that those generic government-wide BPAs are uh, are less than optimal. If, you know, it's the, the issue, and it all gets back to requirements, right? What are your requirements? What are you buying under the BPA? And, you know, unless you articulate that, you're not going to have, I, I don't think, in a, you know, a more efficient and effective BPA. Is that fair? It is. And, you know, I, uh, it makes me think of a couple of things. There GSA has uh, themselves put in place a number of what they call, I think, uh, solution sins, where they've essentially 
created a sin that had been an agency-specific BPA, uh, continuous diagnostic monitoring comes to mind. I think there's one for maybe healthcare, but there's several where, and so as you mentioned, if they're government-wide, then they, they, they incorporate whatever requirements are government-wide, but they can't incorporate the maybe more stringent requirements that specific customers may have. And so there's still work to do for the individual agencies across the government when they have perhaps more stringent requirements for their, their requirements. So it's a uh, instant solution for everybody because it's, it's hard to meet the whole government's needs with a BPA. So they may not be quite as good an idea. And which triggers another thought, and that is uh, the 876 uh, authority, which was granted, uh, I think in 2017, maybe, uh, NDAA. So it's been out there a little while. And uh, that allows an agency or uh, to put in place uh, IDIQ for services and, and leave the pricing analysis for the order level agencies and not, not do a price analysis at the contract level. And GSA contemplated and, and did, a, did consider doing that for the schedules. And I would hope that they might go back and reconsider that. And the, what triggered my thought in my mind was the solution sin. Because right. I had thought that there could be a solution sin that would be 876. So you would have eligible and qualified contractors in the services and, you know, those that provide typically complex solutions. And they would be uh, evaluated based on technical qualifications and the such uh, and their history of performance. But the pricing would occur at the top. But that's sort of complicated by GSA now having these solution SINs that are specific solutions that other agencies had put in place. But I, I think still think there's room for a SIN that would allow uh, agencies to access GSA schedule contractors and do the price analysis at the order level. Right. Yeah, you could, you could have both. You know, you, there's no, there's no yeah. exclusion. I mean, GSA kind of made a you know, a, um, a zero sum decision, right? It's either one way or the other, right? When right. you could actually, uh, you know, combine it and, you know, and people could use what they, what they choose to use anyway. Well, Robin, we're up on the break. When we come back, maybe talk a little bit about opportunities for small businesses under the schedules program, the role it plays in supporting them as well as, um, you know, maybe some, a little bit of update on, uh, ITG wax Oasis program, my guest today is Robin Bourne. He is a subject matter expert at Federal Acquisition at the Gormley Group. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Robin Bourne. Robin is a subject matter expert in Federal Acquisition at the Gormley Group. And we've been talking about the GSA Schedules Program in particular. Um, and Robin, uh, I want to start this segment, as I mentioned, just talking about the schedules program in small businesses. And I know that's something that, you know, we worked hard on when we were back at GSA together, you know, trying to figure out how to support small businesses through that schedules program. And, 
you know, you know, can you talk a little bit about the success GSA's had in that regard and, and why it has been successful? Sure. Uh, the schedules has been extremely successful for small businesses. I think historically, fairly consistently, about 80% of the contractors on schedule have been small businesses and about 30, 30, between 30 and 34, 5% of the dollars that go through the schedules. And that's, you know, upwards of 16, $17 billion a year goes to small business. So it's always uh, exceeded the small business goals substantially. Uh, so it's a very good place. It's, uh, once they get a schedule contract, now that's not always easy, but it is, you know, a known process. There's help out there. Um, then they, it's a license to sell, and they, they not only can go direct, they can a lot of, a lot of big contractors won't even consider a, a small business as a, a subcontractor unless they have a schedule. It's sort of the good, good housekeeping seal of approval for the small business qualifies them to be a subcontractor. Um, they do have a sales minimum they have to reach of twenty five thousand for the first two years, twenty five thousand each year thereafter. In government dollars, that's not a lot. So they just need to get some business and they need to move from being a sub to, to getting some direct work themselves. And they can do that utilizing teaming, which we haven't talked about, but that's that's a, a tool in the schedules program that enables two or more scheduled contractors to get together to put a proposal for uh, an opportunity where an individual company doesn't necessarily have the wherewithal to provide the solution themselves, but they can collectively put together a proposal and then they start getting some business. Uh, this, there's a lot of agencies that now are utilizing the flexibility that was put in place about seven or eight years ago to do small business set-asides on the schedule. That's discretionary. It's not required except for the, the VA. The VA does have to set aside requirements that can be fulfilled by veteran-owned businesses uh, when they have a requirement that's available. Uh, but other than that, set-asides are discretionary under the schedules program, un unlike uh, outside the schedules program. So there are a number of things that uh, have been done to uh, really provide a tool for small businesses to enter the government marketplace and, and succeed. I mean, there have been some tremendous success stories over the years. And uh, right. So one of the things I think people don't know as well is that often, you know, there are states that have their own multiple board schedules program. And one of the requirements typically is that uh, the company, i.e. a small business in California, whatever, you know, get their schedule from GSA, their schedule contract, and the states piggyback off that. Um, and that's a big benefit as well. Is it, is it not? It's true. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of states have their own, uh, as you say, sort of piggyback program. In California is called the CMAS. There's TexMAS. Uh, and they typically are, uh, not utilizing the schedules themselves, but using them as, a, as you mentioned, as as a qualifier to get into their program. And and a lot of times they're just adding their own terms conditions uh, to the schedule price list, but they create their own state contract. It's not utilizing the schedule 
uh, other than utilizing it as a qualifier for the their program. But it's still uh, it's a big benefit when you can qualify for those state programs because they're they're going to utilize those contracts. Right. Well, another we you know an area just real quickly too is that like for the IT schedules state and local or the IT portion of the schedule state and locals can purchase directly and also for disaster recovery they can use the schedules has that that sort of seemed like it's plateaued at a you know like around 750 to a billion dollars a year is that is that where it is right now yeah i think so but it, you know it's it's it is a very you know useful flexibility that uh, some states take advantage of i mean so you have both IT and uh, the sort of the home, uh, the what was the old Des- disaster recovery? Is that, well, disaster. Yeah, there's the cooperative purchasing, which is IT, and then it was expanded later to sort of the uh, homeland security type of marketplace. And then you have the disaster recovery program, which, while initially required there to be a disaster, and uh, and it was focused on recovery, it was that was expanded to include preparation for. So it's now able to be utilized by any state uh, where they have any reasonable expectation that they might need to recover from some sort of disaster, whether it be hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, could be power failures. I mean, there are all sorts of disasters going that potentially occur these days and seem to be getting more severe and severe weather. Uh, so, that's a program that is available uh, for every schedule. They, they can access any schedule for that reason. If if the contractor accepts, and the contractor is flexible for them because they can opt into the program at the contract level, but they still have the flexibility at the order level to play or not play. Right. So, so there's lots of opportunities across the board for companies you know, just in the traditional sort of schedules world, but also the, you know, the the impact it has sort of across other buying organizations. I think it's, I think there's still a lot of untapped potential in those areas um, for growth for GSA and for the contractors. And speaking about growth, um, you know, over the years, uh, we just got, we've got about a minute and a half left. And, uh, you know, I wanted to talk real quickly, at least, getting a little bit about the ITG Wax and the Oasis program. Uh, you know, they collectively account for probably about $20 billion in sales, um, all the GWAX and Oasis added together on an annual basis. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts or updates on those and, and how they, you know, work, how the schedules work with those and vice versa? Well, I think they've uh, been very successful. They do complement the schedules program. One of the big differentiators between the schedules and the and the GWACs and uh, and Max, like Oasis, is the availability of the cost reimbursement contract type. And so that provides uh, agencies that are in that space the opportunity to use, uh, you know, what OFPP has stated. If you have an existing contract that's available to meet your requirements, use it. So GSA has been very uh, effective at putting in place uh, some broad-based contracts which provide those solutions. And I think the interesting part with OASIS will be the number of contractors. It's going to be a greatly expanded contractor field. And will that 
Will that still be attractive where you have fair opportunity? Will they have uh, narrowly defined uh, pools that will not scare or away? Domains. They're using domains. Domain, yeah, yeah, so that they won't be getting too many offers on a requirement. But uh, GSA has done a great job with with uh, having a program that complements the schedules, and they they do generate a lot of money uh, from the from the agencies, which shows that their uh, popularity is a reflection on the success of the the efforts GSA has put in place. So right, well that's uh, that's where we have to end the show, Robin. I want to thank my guest today, Robin Bourne. He's a subject matter expert in federal acquisition at the Gormley Group. And I'm Roger Walden. You've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.